welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Jeremiah 17. If you believe in the doctrines of grace, if you are convinced of the reformed doctrine of total depravity, When you hear yourself defending the concept of total depravity, at some point, you will yank out Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all, desperately wicked, according to the King James, and who can know it? So we're familiar with that verse yanked from its natural context, but the context is even more interesting Because God himself first lays out an enormous contrast that if you follow him, if you trust him, that he is going to care for you and you're going to be fruitful and you're going to be forever in his presence. And that if you don't follow him, if you don't believe him, if you don't trust him and have confidence in him, that your life is just going to be ultimately disastrous. And with that kind of huge contrast... It's a real either-or kind of contrast. With that contrast laid out by God himself, you would think that any intelligent person would choose, well, yeah, life. Will choose, yes, follow God. Would choose, yes, I should have faith and confidence in God and let him defend me because then everything's going to turn out ultimately good for me. What person wouldn't choose that if they had the option And yet people choose so very badly. This is in the larger context of Israel's constant rebellion against God. And God's explanation for that is that the human heart is just wicked. And who can understand why it would be like this? I'm sure if you've looked around at what's going on in the world these days at all, you have looked at it and said, how can people... Be thinking this. How can people be doing this? How can people think that a man is a woman and a woman is a man? How how is it that Supreme Court judges don't seem to be able to define what a woman is? I mean, if we really reach that stage, well, it's explained here by God that the human heart is not just wicked, but almost mysteriously wicked. Who can possibly understand the depth of the depravity of human beings, especially given that God himself is saying, look, here are your choices. Follow me, eternal life. Don't, eternal death. And then people choose eternal death. People go on their merry way, especially Israel here, and continue in their rebellion against God. And there's no way to explain that except that their hearts are deceiving them because they have wicked, lying, deceptive hearts. And then at the end of this chapter, God is going to turn to the Sabbath again. 
He has been, through most of the first 16 chapters, he has really been talking a lot about Israel's following after foreign gods, abandoning him, abandoning his rule and his law, and the covenant that he has made with Israel in particular. And the sign of that covenant that he has made with them is the Sabbath, Sabbath keeping, the Sabbath rule, and they have abandoned that too. So not only are they chasing after other gods, not only are they committing their harlotries, not only have they turned to idols, things that they have manufactured with their own human hands, and then abandoned the only God who actually is, who could actually benefit them. But in the midst of all that, they have also broken the Sabbath so that they have broken covenant with him. Chapter 17 is a continuation of last week. It is part of the same conversation between God and Jeremiah. And last week we saw God say, they are guilty and my justice is going to be served and I am going to take this entire generation of Israel and I'm going to have them killed by famine have them killed by pestilence. I'm going to have them killed by the sword. I'm going to have them taken into a land where they're not known. They're going to go into Babylon. They're going to serve there. And then he includes, but I'm not going to wipe them out completely. I'm going to keep the covenant with them because I made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he is a covenant-keeping God despite the failures of his people to actually live up to his agreements. Aren't you happy about that? Amen. I mean, that's good news if you're anything like me, and I hope to God you're not. <laughs> but if you're anything like me, you're really happy to know that God is faithful to his promises even when we are faithless, and that he's not going to lose us, he's going to correct us. And that is what he has promised to do with Israel. And then it is right behind that promise to bring them back at the end of 70 years, to reestablish Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls. And then God gets all eschatological and reaches out into the distance and talks about the day when he's going to regather Israel and plant them permanently in their land and then turns on a dime from all those promises of good and restoration and covenant promise keeping and then reminds them, chapter 17, verse 1, of how truly, genuinely sinful and wicked and depraved they really are. In the midst of condemning them here, he's going to start again with the same thing that their wickedness has to do with worshiping other idols, worshiping other gods. And in the midst of that, God's going to say, You have kindled a fire in my anger, a fire and anger that is going to burn forever. And that's because God is eternal. And whatever emotions God has, they are eternal emotions. God does not have emotional whims like we humans might have. He has continuity to his feelings, emotions, I don't even think that we can call them emotions in any kind of human sense. But he has an anger and a determination to judge people, to satisfy his own justice, 
And knowing that that is a forever quality of God, it makes his mercy and grace all the more astounding. Because in the light of a God whose anger burns forever, he also has grace and kindness to some people. And he can say to some people, I'm going to remember your sin forever, and I'm going to judge you for your sin forever. And he can say to other people, I've cast your sins behind my back, as far as the east is from the west, into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up again. That is astounding mercy in light of a God who has the capacity to burn in his anger forever. So the contrasts in this chapter are huge. Chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart. What God is basically saying is their wickedness, the sinfulness of these people, is coming out of their heart. It's coming out of their inner being as if it were engraved there. They can't escape it. They can't get away from it. And so he describes it as being written down with a stylus of iron, with a diamond point that is engraving their sin on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. Uh, If you've seen Middle Eastern altars, on the four corners, there's a raised up little area, and those are called the horns of the altar. And he is saying, even on their altars, even on the places where they sacrifice, that too testifies to their sinfulness. That too demonstrates their sinfulness because they are worshiping in the ashram. They are worshiping green trees on high hills. They're worshiping foreign gods and bales. So even their worship testifies to the depth of their depravity. And How do they remember these altars? God just uses this really incredible language. He says in verse 2, the same way that they remember their children. So, Steve, you're of relatively sound mind. Uh, Have you ever just forgotten your children? No, I leave that up to my wife. Oh, oh, wise guy. Not so wise. You have to live with her. Are you aware of that? You have to... I'm pretty much aware of that. <laughs> the same way that people cannot forget their own children, he says that's the way that Judah remembers their altars and their asherim. The way that they worship after the foreign gods, the way they worship the goddesses, the way that they worship in the high hills the way that they worship the Baals. He said, that's the way they remember to do it. That they remember. That they never forget. But me? They forget me all the time. They forget my Sabbaths. They forget my promises. They forget my covenant. But oh, they remember their their false worship. They remember their idols. As they remember their children, so they remember their altars and their ashram by the green trees on the high hills. O mountain of mine in the countryside. Now he's talking about the actual land of Judah, the very thing that he promised to Israel 
in perpetuity, as an everlasting covenant. This land of milk and honey belongs to you. Now he's talking to the land itself. O mountain of mine in the countryside, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for booty and your high places for sin throughout your borders. God is going to take all the wealth, all the good that this land of milk and honey is producing and give it to the enemies of Israel because that land also includes high places where they sin by worshiping at their ashram, worshiping foreign gods. But as he's talking to the land, he's really talking to the people of the land. Verse 4, he speaks to them more directly and says, And you will, even of yourself, let go of your inheritance. What is their inheritance? The land itself. I gave you this land. I gave it to your forefathers. I've promised it to your children. And this land, you're going to give it up. You're going to let go of your inheritance that I gave to you. And I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger, which will burn forever. Thus says Yahweh, cursed is the man who trusts in other men. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from Yahweh. So what are they doing? Israel has made deals. Judah has made deals, made deals with Egypt, have gone to other countries trying to protect themselves from their multiple enemies. And God is saying, I would have protected you the whole time. Had you had confidence in me, I'm the one who brought you here and gave you this land. I would have protected you from the wild animals. I would have protected you from the weather. I would have protected you and made sure you always had food. I would have provided you rain in the seasons. I would have taken care of you, and yet you kept running off to these foreign nations, these Gentile nations, and making deals and making covenants together in order to get them to protect you. And after you made your deal with Egypt, Egypt reneged on that deal because Babylon conquered them. So what good did they really do for you? And so the first part of God's contrast here is, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. And now just a little bit of social commentary, if I may. Every time there's an election, and next year there's going to be an election again. Every time there's an election, I watch people get all stirred up and hopeful because they think, the next guy, he's going to fix it. The next guy, it's going to get better. I've been alive long enough to find lots of next guys. I've seen a whole lot of next guys. And things don't get better. Things are progressively getting worse because, as the Bible says, men are going to wax worse and worse because the Bible tells us that the human heart is depraved. And so no surprise that the next guy cannot fix it and will not fix it. And we as a nation, once upon a time, used to say that our confidence was in God, but we certainly never acted like that was true. Mm. Now here is God yet again saying, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind 
And yet we all just so naturally do that. We just expect that there's another human somewhere who can fix the problems of the world. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. And whose heart turns away from the Lord, turns away from Yahweh. For he will be, listen to this description, he's going to be like a bush in the desert. Is he going to get a lot of water? Is he going to be taken care of, replenished? And he will not see when prosperity comes. In other words, he's going to remain in that state. It is an unprosperous, unhelpful state. And he's never going to see prosperity come his way. But he will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Nothing grows in salt. And so it is a destructive way to live. And yet it is the way that so much of human flesh lives. Trusting in their own flesh, trusting in other people, thinking that we're going to solve our collective problems. And as you've heard me say time and time again, individually and collectively, you can't be your solution. You are your problem. We collectively, as a bunch of humans, aren't going to be the ones to solve it. We're the ones that caused it. And it's not as if we're magically going to get better and fix it. And so the outcome is going to be like a bush in the desert. We'll not see prosperity come, but we'll live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Now listen to the contrast, verse 7. But blessed is the man who does trust in Yahweh and whose trust is is the Lord. An interesting little bit of wordplay there. Not only does he trust in the Lord as though, well, I believe God can do it. I believe God can help. But then whose trust is God? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be unlike a tree or a bush planted in a desert, for he will be like a tree planted by the water who extends its roots by the stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green because its roots are right into the spring of water, constantly being fed, constantly being nourished. But its leaves will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Okay, so the contrast is a dead and dying bush in the desert. Those are people who don't trust God. Versus a green tree by a stream that constantly bears fruit. The contrast is huge. And the distinction between the two is trusting or not trusting in God. So you would think based on that, that any intelligent person would understand that trusting God is better. And that is the context in which verse 9 shows up, that the heart is more deceitful than everything else and is desperately sick. And who can understand it? Because, yes, to choose against God to your own destruction is a sickness that is a diseased mind that is a perpetually evil heart 
to choose against God, knowing full well that that leads to destruction. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So the human heart is desperately wicked, and God tests the heart and searches the heart. So what's he going to find when he searches the heart of men? Wickedness. Wickedness. Desperate wickedness. That's all that he can find when he looks at human fleshly hearts. And miracle of miracles, this is the same God who then says, I'll take out your stony heart. I'll give you a heart of flesh. He changes our hearts. He changes our minds so that we can attend to his word, so that we can listen to him and follow after him and trust him, so that we can have faith in him. And if you understand that basic premise, that the human heart is always evil continually, always, then the only way that anybody can get to God's presence, the only way that anybody can be redeemed, the only way that anybody can find peace with God, it can't be you. It can't be something you did because you got nothing going except your wicked heart. And you can't take that wicked heart and your filthy rags to God and say, well, I got this. That's not going to do you any good. If there's going to be a change in anybody, if there's going to be redemption for anybody, it can't be the person who does it. It has to be God who does it. It's just axiomatic. It proves itself. That's not even dependent on some kind of deep doctrine. It's just the reality of who humans are and who God is. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways and according to the results of his deeds. Now, verse 11 is really interesting, and I'm going to have to wax zoological for a bit on this verse, because what it says is, as a partridge that hatches eggs which it has not laid... And then he makes a comparison. Well, I did a little bit of background and study on this to find out, do partridges actually do that? What I found out was that partridges are quite common there in the Middle East, in Palestine. And there was a rumor, a a wives' tale of sorts, that partridges used to steal other eggs from other birds and then would hatch them. But the reality is that there's nothing in nature, there's no recording in natural science of that actually happening, of partridges doing that. But what does happen, partridges, when they lay eggs, lay a lot, I mean like 20 eggs at a time. So, you know, take that, chickens, because partridges lay big bunches of eggs, and then Cuckoo birds, which are also common in Palestine, lay their eggs in other nests and then expect those other birds to raise them. And then what happens is once those cuckoo birds have hatched along with the other hatchlings 
As soon as they can fly, they leave that brood. They don't stay with that brood because they're not partridges or they're not of that brood of birds. Well, God knows that. And he knows the common assumption that the people in Israel have that partridges steal eggs. And so knowing that, he applies that to the man who gains riches for himself illegally and draws a comparison. The same way that a bird goes out and snatches eggs that aren't theirs, and then when they hatch, they leave. Here's what God says. As a partridge that hatches eggs which it has not laid, so he who makes a fortune but makes it unjustly, in the midst of his days, it will forsake him. And in the end, he will be a fool. So again, this is a demonstration of the wickedness, the evil of the human heart. Greed manifests itself in the wicked human heart. And then that greed cannot help you long term. When you die, how much of your collection of fortune in this life do you take with you? Uh, None. It's going to abandon you. And so God says the same way that a partridge might, and actually the word here that says hatches eggs, it actually is a word that means to heap up eggs. A partridge might heap up some eggs that it hasn't laid. And that's the same way it is for somebody who makes a lot of money in this life, makes a fortune, but does it unjustly. There's nothing wrong with making money in this lifetime. There's nothing wrong with taking care of your own. That's a strictly biblical principle. But if you do it on the backs of other people, if you do it because of your greed, if you do it in an unjust way, then in the midst of your days, that money's going to forsake you. It's not going to be able to help you. Mm-hmm. Has anybody here ever known, I certainly have, uh, some very, very wealthy people who then came down with a disease that they couldn't really do anything about. And their money just couldn't help them. Their money abandoned them when they needed it most. Mm -hmm. And God sees that as a form of divine justice, a form of divine retribution. And what he's really demonstrating here is human beings put their confidence in flesh, Human beings put their confidence in other men rather than their confidence in God. Human beings put their confidence in their money. They put their confidence in their fortunes rather than God. And flesh is ultimately going to betray you. Other people are not going to be able to help you or save you or redeem you. And your money is not going to be able to help you or redeem you in a time of desperate need. Things that only God can fix. I have heard people who professed nothing their whole life, who professed basic atheism their whole life, made a lot of money. And then something happened in their life. They lost a child or they lose their health. Something bad happens and they cry to God because they realize that the only hope in desperate times isn't their flesh, isn't their friends. Isn't other people, isn't the doctors. Isn't their money, isn't their wealth, power, fame. The only hope in desperate times is God. 
And God is saying, you didn't trust me. I've been here, and you didn't trust me. You trusted all these other things. That is evidence of the wickedness of your heart. Because not trusting God, get this right, is wicked. And God expects confidence, faith, and trust in him. Verse 12. A glorious throne. This is now apparently Jeremiah replying to God. Starting at verse 12, he says, A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Who sits on the glorious throne from the beginning? God. God. God alone. It's not any human. And that's where we find peace. That's where we find hope. That's where we find sanctuary. That's where we find safety. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all who forsake thee, will be put to shame. Jeremiah understands what God's been saying so far in this chapter. The contrasts, the demonstrations that God is laying out, Jeremiah is now making it clear. All who forsake thee will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water even Yahweh. And so then Jeremiah says, this time is coming. This is what you've sent me to tell Jerusalem time and time again, that there is this time of great trouble coming, and they are going to be taken off into Babylon. There is going to be famine and pestilence and death and sword. This terrible time is coming. And so Jeremiah then says, yes, turn your wrath against your enemies, but protect me. This bad time is coming, God. Look out for me in the midst of that. Verse 14. Heal me, O Yahweh, and I will be healed. He's demonstrating everything God's been saying so far. Trust me. Look to me. I'll take care of you. So Jeremiah says, heal me, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. That is the exact correct response to the contrast that God's been laying out. The correct response is, you're God. I trust you, God. I hope in you, God. I take sanctuary in you, God. Save me and I will be saved for you are my praise. Verse 15, look, they keep saying to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. They keep wanting me to tell them good stuff. They keep wanting me to tell them, well, here's the word of the Lord. I've been giving them nothing but the word of the Lord so far. I've been telling them exactly what you told me to tell them. And they keep going to other prophets and other people and saying, tell us something good. Tell us something positive. Tell us the real word of the Lord. Not that stuff Jeremiah is talking about. They keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. But as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd after you. I've said exactly what you sent me to say. 
nor have I longed for that woeful day. I haven't looked forward to that day of distress that you keep saying is coming. Thou thyself knowest the utterance of my lips was in thy presence. So you know that I've said exactly what you told me to say. I have told these people, and that is why they have hated me. That is why they are persecuting me, because I have told them exactly what you told me to tell them. I have told them about this day of woe that's coming. And Jeremiah would very naturally then want to desire that day to come about so that he could say, see, I am a prophet. See, I told you. You know, Jeremiah preached for 40 years, and we have no record of any convert. We have no record of anybody believing him. He was persecuted and hated for saying exactly what God told him to say. And here he is saying to God, you yourself know what I've said. You know the utterance of my lips. Everything I said was in your presence. You know that I have said exactly what you told me. Do not be a terror to me. Thou art my refuge in that day of disaster. Let those who persecute me be put to shame. But as for me, let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring on them a day of disaster and crush them with twofold destruction. Yes, God, do everything you said you're going to do. Just watch out for me. Just remember I trust in you. Remember that I have said exactly what you said I was supposed to say. I've done what you wanted me to do. So just protect me in this day of disaster that's coming. And rather than me getting puffed up when that day of disaster comes so that I can say, see, I was a real prophet. I told you this was coming. He is so sure that this day of disaster is going to be so bad for Jerusalem that he laments over it coming and says, I don't desire it. I'm not looking forward to it, but I'll keep saying it. And you know that I continue saying it. Therefore, when they are dismayed, protect me. And that's a good prayer. Yeah, God's going to do what God's going to do, and he's going to judge this world. He said so. Time of trouble coming such as never was or ever would be again. That's what Jesus said. And yet he's going to protect his own. And the same way that David would pray against his enemies, Jeremiah is doing the same thing. He's saying, yes, God, I agree with you. You have said in your eternal fire of hatred, in your anger, you have said that you're going to judge your enemies. I'm on your side, God. Judge your enemies. But be faithful to your people. Be faithful to those that you choose, those that you love. Be faithful. Well, on the back of that, rather than getting a response from God like, I will, it's okay, I got you, I got your back, you're going to be fine. God immediately goes back to the same topic he's been talking about for chapters and chapters now. He goes back to, yes, but Israel deserves it. Mm. He's making his case time and time again, laying out the demonstration of why Judah deserves this punishment. And now he's going to turn to, they have broken the sign of the covenant. They are not keeping the Sabbath. Thus said the Lord to me, 
And this is even more interesting. Jeremiah has just said, okay, now I said what you told me to say, and they hated me for it. And they persecuted me for it. And God's command is, go do it again. <laughs> no relenting, no backing off. Get out there and do it again. And this time, go to the gate of the city where the king comes and goes and talk to the king. That'll make him real popular. <laughs> Thus the Lord said to me, go and stand in the public gate through which the kings of Judah come in and go out, as well as in all the gates of Jerusalem. So start at the gate where you talk to the king, and then go to all the other gates and make sure everybody hears this message. And say to them, listen to the word of Yahweh, kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all inhabitants of Jerusalem who come in through these gates. Thus says the Lord, take heed for yourselves. In other words, pay attention and consider yourselves. Take a good look at yourselves. What are you doing? And do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. So that's why he had to go to the gates, because apparently they were still doing trade and they were still bringing in loads of goods. They were still doing that work on the Sabbath, still enriching themselves, still making money on the Sabbath. So not only were they breaking the Sabbath by doing manual labor on the Sabbath day, but they were also enriching themselves on the Sabbath day, making it about themselves instead of making it about God. Say to them, listen to the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah. Thus says the Lord, take heed for yourselves. Pay attention to what you're doing and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. And you shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, separate not like every other day. The same way that I commanded your forefathers. This is not anything new. It's not something God just dreamed up. This is part of his law. This is one of the big ten. This is one of the ten commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They have no reason not to know that commandment from God. But they're so busy taking care of their flesh and buying and selling and trading and carrying their loads in and doing their work that they haven't even thought about the fact that they're breaking covenant with God. Yet again, another demonstration of the futility and the wickedness of their own hearts. And yet, verse 23, even though I commanded this to your forefathers, yet they did not listen, they did not incline their ears, but they stiffened their necks in order not to listen or to take correction. It's not just that they couldn't hear it. They just stubbornly didn't hear it. Because their hearts are wicked. And so they hardened their necks, stiffened their necks, in order not to listen, in order not to receive correction from God. But it will come about. If you listen to me attentively, declares the Lord, to bring no load in through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but to keep the Sabbath day holy 
by doing no work on it, then there will come in through these very same gates of this city, there will come in kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever. Just do it my way and I'll bless you the same way I've blessed you in the past. They have to remember King David. They have to remember Solomon. They have to remember the days historically when Israel was the shining jewel of the Middle East. When other kings and other queens like the queen of Sheba would come just to see the magnificence of the kings of Judah. At the time that Jeremiah says this, the kings of Judah are vassals of Babylon. Mm. He's saying, I'll restore you to the great nation you once were. All you got to do is trust me. All you got to do is follow my law. All you've got to do is incline your ear toward me and keep my Sabbath. Let my land, which by the way is my land, let my land lay fallow. Do it once every seven days. Do it once every seven years. Look after my land the way that I have instructed you, and, and you won't listen. But if you would, I would restore you. Okay, so why don't they do that? Just do that. They don't want to go to Babylon. They don't want to be slaves. They don't want to go into service. And here's the answer to how not. Just, just follow after God. Just do that. Why can't they? Why don't they? Why wouldn't they? Because their hearts are evil. And who can understand it? It's such a pressing question. Who can comprehend the stupid things that people do? Who can understand the wickedness of humans that would turn on God? Verse 26. They will come in from the cities of Judah and from the environs of Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the lowland, and from the hill country and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings, sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, and bringing sacrifices of thanksgiving to the house of the Lord. So those two things are intimately connected. I will repair you, I will rebuild you, I will make you a magnificent city again, and oh yeah, you will worship me. And as long as you're worshiping me exclusively with all of the sacrifices that I have prescribed in the law, as long as you're doing that and trusting me, I'll take care of you. But in your wickedness, you're going to chase after your flesh. You're going to chase after other men. You're going to chase after foreign gods. And you're going to neglect me as demonstrated by the fact that you neglect my Sabbath. And so verse 27. But if you do not listen to me and keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying a load and coming in through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I shall kindle a fire in its gates, and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. When Nebuchadnezzar and his army defeated, knocked down the walls of Jerusalem, and then got to the temple after stealing all the gold and taking all the riches, they then burned the temple and burned the city and God right here predicted it. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm going to do. And he did exactly that because he's a God 
who doesn't lie. He's a God who pours out his judgment. But notice that before he pours out his judgment, he gives them adequate warning and gives them every good logical reason to do things his way. He can even point at their history and say, didn't I do it? Didn't I always take care of you? Didn't I bring you out of Egypt? Didn't I give you this land of milk and honey? Haven't I taken care of you? And yet, you would turn against me. So, I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to burn down Jerusalem. And that's historically exactly what happened, because that God is a faithful judge and a faithful, merciful Savior. Oh, hallelujah. So if you get nothing else from that chapter, when you leave tonight and someone says, what'd you learn tonight? Just remember that you learned how truly, desperately wicked the hearts of men are because even in the face of a wonderful alternative, human beings always choose badly. You know, I, I've known people in my life, as I said earlier, who had a tremendous amount of money so that they could choose anything they wanted. And I came to the conclusion as a young man that human beings don't do well with limitless choice because they always chose badly. And that, again, is just a demonstration of the wickedness of men's hearts, exactly like Jeremiah describes. So does that chapter feel relevant to today? Yeah. Because human beings don't change. And thank God that God our Savior doesn't change. That's our hope. That's our praise. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.